Faces come and go and I'm forever grateful Come and tell me long and slow exactly what I wait for Better times, yeah, better times, somehow I don't believe it I built a house up long ago just to up and leave it During the hunting season of 2020, I was fortunate enough to see and bag my first ever spruce grouse while on a rough grouse hunting trip in northern Minnesota on the edge of the Boundary Waters Wilderness area. That first bird was an absolutely stunningly gorgeous young male that was pointed and retrieved by my young short-haired Gitchy. From that moment on, I fell in love, and I fell in love really hard with spruce grouse. I love their beauty, their personality, the places they live, and their taste on the plate. So, ladies and gentlemen, On the Wing podcast listeners, please indulge me as I explore an upland gamer that lives nowhere near the uh, grasslands. This is a boreal forest bird, the spruce grouse. And joining me today to learn a little bit more from two experts on spruce grouse from the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources, the Grouse Project leader and research biologist, Charlotte Roy, and the assistant area wildlife manager for Northeastern Minnesota, Bailey Peterson. Charlotte, Bailey, thank you very much for taking the time to uh, Teach me about sprucies. Uh, let's start with Charlotte. Um, Charlotte, maybe give us a little bit of background about who you are, where you're from, um, where you went to school, and what you do for the Minnesota DNR. Sure. First, I just want to say thank you so much for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. It's always fun to talk about spruce grouse. They're such cool birds. Um, I, I actually, I grew up as a military brat, so I moved all over the country. I've lived in, all over the U.S. I've lived abroad. I lived in Turkey for a few years, Ooh. so I'm not really from anywhere, so to speak. <laughs> uh, and then after I was done, you know, moving around with my family, uh, I went to school. I got my B.S. in New York. Then I moved to Illinois to get my master's in Southern Illinois University at Carbondale. I started my PhD at the Ohio State University, but then my advisor moved and I went with her to the University of Missouri. Hmm. And so, yeah, so after a postdoc and, and working with graduate students for a while, I eventually came to Minnesota to work here as a research scientist for the DNR in 2007. So I've been in Minnesota longer than anywhere else. And so now I claim Minnesota is home. Wow. Where did, where did upland birds come into your life? And was it in Europe or somewhere in the States? Here in Minnesota. I mean, okay. we have the best upland game bird habitat, I think, in probably most of the lower 48. So we're, we're pretty lucky here. I, I'm, I fell in love with them here. Yeah, very cool. Um, Bailey, tell us a little bit about your background and, and what you do for a living. Sure. Um, so yeah, I'm Bailey Peterson. I'm the assistant area wildlife manager for the DNR up here in uh, the Two Harbors area. So my work area is in, on the North Shore um, of Minnesota as it borders Lake Superior. Um, I'm 
I'm kind of, I'm from Minnesota and I never left Minnesota. So kind of <laughs> a little opposite <laughs> of Charlotte, um, grew up in the Metro area in the twin cities, uh, moved up to North central Minnesota in high school, uh, where I really started to fall in love with the outdoors more and more. Um, I took a, a advanced forestry class when I was like in ninth grade and it was pretty much like from then on out, I knew I wanted to, um, work outside for a living. And I went to Bemidji State University um, and got a bachelor's degree in wildlife management. And while I was there, I had the great opportunity to intern with the DNR, um, working on uh, wildlife lakes for um, duck habitat, primarily wild rice lakes um, in north central Minnesota. And so then it was pretty much ducks and um, wild rice and that everything consumed my life that, uh, I went straight from college to that particular program in Brainerd. And I was lucky to get a job right out of college. I had every intention of going to, uh, Missoula for my, uh, master's and I never got a chance. <laughs> I never left. I, I got a job at the DNR and I have just, um, you know, kind of embraced that ever since. I, I moved up here at, uh, to Two Harbors Work area um, 10 years ago. Uh, there was a project going on at the time um, called the Northeast Minnesota Moose Mortality Project. I was very interested mm -hmm. in getting uh, some really, really intensive field work by going in after um, moose that had GPS collars on and that had uh, died in one way or another and helping to investigate how that happened, getting the moose out of the woods whole. It was just like a huge challenge and such an awesome project. And I was really lucky to uh, be able to be a part of it um, through my work over here. But my the main work that I do over here is um, assisting the public um, with questions, concerns, where to hunt, how to hunt, with different species we have over here, managing our wildlife owned lands, um, our hunter walking trails. And yeah, I, I mean, I, I love receiving calls from the public to, to help them figure out uh, where they should go to hunt. I, I think this is one of the most beautiful areas in the state. And, mm. and I still feel that way after, after 10 years and I'm not done exploring places to hunt myself. I mean, I honestly give people <laughs> places to hunt that are on my list of places to scout. And I always say, like, mm. you better call me back. Let me <laughs> so use it to my benefit a little bit. Um, the main thing that I do this time of year during the winter is working with our foresters. Um, you know, we're almost 100% forested over here. And so that is the main way that habitat is managed over here is through routine forest management. And so just working with our foresters um, on timber sales that they're setting up just to make sure that all aspects of the different critters and wildlife species that are living in those stands, um, that those thoughts and considerations are being taken into account on, on the timber sales mm -hmm. that are being set up. So, yeah. And, and you are super active on Instagram. Uh, what's your Instagram handle? Uh, at, uh, at Bailey01, B-A-I-L-E-Y-01. And if folks look at Bailey01 on Instagram, you know that you'll see Bailey is an avid, avid, avid upland bird hunter traveling across the country chasing, chasing 
or ringneck pheasants, quail, rough grouse, uh, woodcock, spruce grouse. You have, you have, is it four English setters? Um, I have three setters and um, a small monster lander. Okay. So you are, you are as hardcore a bird hunter as they come. Um, Charlotte, do you, do you bird hunt too? Do you have dogs? I have a Gordon Setter. I, oh, wow. I, okay. Yeah, he's 18 months, and boy, he's a handful, but we're getting out a lot and finding birds, and so we're having lots of fun. Outstanding. Well, th- this is this is wonderful. So we're going to talk um, uh, over the course of this episode about the biology of spruces, habitat, some research being done, and then also... Um, spruce grouse hunting and, and um, maybe some tips and tricks that uh, you can both give to our, our listeners. But let's start. Um, we'll start with uh, Bailey. You know, for folks that are listening, obviously this is Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever oriented podcast. Folks that live in the grasslands or the Great Plains or the savannas of the Southeast, um, they probably know as much about a spruce grouse as they knew, you know, or as little about spruce grouse as any upland birds. Um, maybe describe what what a sprucey looks like for somebody that um, maybe hasn't even seen one on the internet. Sure. Um, yes. Yeah, so spruce grouse are a smaller sized grouse, uh, slightly smaller than um, the rough grouse that are also the forest dependent um, grouse species that we have over here. Um, they're pretty neat. They're um, called uh, or considered a sexually dimorphic grouse. So the males and females look differently um, than each other versus rough grouse where you can't really just look at them, um, you know, at the end of a dog's nose and figure out whether it's a male or a female. But um, the females are, they're a little drab. Um, they're a mottled brown color. Uh Kind of brownish feathers with some black barring, some a little bit of white, uh, white and brown, black barring on the chest. Um, overall, darker bird, um, I would say than than a rough grouse. Um, and then the males, they're just a, a kind of a striking bird. They're they're black, very heavy white and black barring on the chest. Um, the mm-hmm. tail is almost pure black, but it has a just the most beautiful copper tips on the on the adult males especially, um, and then the brilliant red eye comb. I think that's kind of what stands out the most on that bird is just such a stark mm-hmm. contrast um, on the kind of the black head um, of that bird. Um, you know, I get asked a lot how to tell the difference between rough grouse and spruce grouse um, when I'm hunting. Uh, I have seen them in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan when I've been grouse hunting over there, and, and they're se- they don't have a season for them. Minnesota's the furthest um, east where there is a hunting season for spruce grouse in the U.S., um, even though they are um, their range does extend, you know, into Wisconsin, the U.P., over to Maine, um, maybe some other states that. I'm- but it, either either way, there are, is not a hunting season anywhere um, east of Minnesota. And uh, so you definitely want to make sure that you're identifying properly the species on the on the wing. Um, And so my answer to that is often that they're just darker. They're just a darker Mm. bird. They're smaller, um, especially um, later in the season, you know, when 
the brood should be grown up because I know early in the season, um, you know, September you're hunting rough grouse and a lot of them can seem pretty small still. But when you get into like late November, early December, that that's sort of leveled out. Not, not so much with the spruce grouse. Mm. They still seem, I think, quite a bit smaller on the flush. And, and like I said, an overall darker appearance. Um, and I don't think that they fly as erratically as a rough grouse. You know, they always seem to go a million different directions before you can even shoulder your gun. And I think the spruce grouse always seem to have a deliberate path um, when they do flush. And I think they flush with more of a dampened noise. And I don't know if it's because of their feathers are shorter or they just don't make the same noise mm-hmm. or if it's because of the sphagnum moss uh, on the floor of the um, spruce bog or whatever that dampens the noise, but that's just something I've noticed that is slightly quieter. Hmm. That, so a couple things that just, I react to there, the female spruce grouse, the first time I held one in my hand, I, I thought it was a hybrid between a spruce and a rough because it's, it's clearly not a rough grouse and it's completely different looking than what you said with the male uh, spruce grouse. And you, you kind of, I had to look it up on the internet. I was like, Oh, okay. This is really what a, a female sprucey looks yeah, like. Yeah. Um, th- but they are very similar, though, aren't they? They can be. I mean, from a distance. So um, when we were uh, helping Charlotte with, with her research and we'd see them on the road, uh, we'd look with binoculars and look with binoculars. And sometimes mm-hmm. it was hard to tell. Um, but of course, as you approach them, they, they did act quite a bit differently in that, in that situation. And, you know, when you talk about identifying them as a hunter, you know, I grew up in the Upper Peninsula, Michigan, and I've never seen a spruce grouse in the UP. Um, So that's one thing. There's just, there's not huge populations, but being able to identify them on the wing, the males, I think you could do it pretty, I mean, they're, they are dark, they are different. It would stop you. The females be really challenging but the biggest point is their habitats for the most part and i know you have a story that maybe (laughs) bleeds into this a little bit but their habitats for where sprucies live versus roughs is probably your biggest tell about which bird is going to be flushing would you agree with that yeah for the most part you're going to find them in different habitat types and and more often you're going to find rough grouse mixed into spruce grouse cover more often so there's i'm like using a disclaimer because there's always going to be um the ones that prove you wrong you know (laughs) that don't go that don't go with the norm uh and so that that is you know something that happens but the the point of it being if you think you're in an area where there might be both species and there um is not an open season then you just should you just shouldn't take that shot right um, Charlotte, let's let's talk a little bit about kind of the state of spruce grouse prop populations in the country. So it, I've done on this podcast deep dives um, focused on sage grouse and lesser prairie chickens and lots of bob white quail talk about just where the population stands today versus 20, 30 years ago. And it, you know, relates back to habitat loss and habitat fragmentation. What's, what's the overall population trend for spruce grouse in, um, in North America? 
That's a really good question. And up until 2018, we really had no way to know. Uh, we didn't have a survey for spruce grouse, but when I first started as the grouse scientist in 2013, some of the managers, the wildlife managers for the DNR came to me and they said, we really need to know how many spruce grouse we have because mm. they're game species mm -hmm. and we need to have some sense of how their populations are doing. And so one of the very first projects that I took on when I took this position was to try to figure out a way to survey these birds so that we would be able to answer that question. And we started out, we weren't quite sure how to go about doing it because, um, well, nobody had done a large scale mm. survey before. And so some of the ways that other people had tried was to use a cantus call, which is the female call that they make mm. in the spring. Um, and they've tried that out west because there's a western subspecies and an eastern subspecies. And so out west, they've used the cantus call and they also do a wing clap display out west. But here in Minnesota, they don't do that wing clap display. They, they do do the cantus call. Uh, so we started there. And, uh, and so we were, were trying for, you know, trying to figure out how to go about doing this at a large scale. And uh, in the process, we were, not, we were not really getting very many, many detections through the cantus call. So we ended up, um, we, while we were walking around, I was working with people like Bailey, a lot of different uh, folks with trained dogs, and, and we were walking around in the woods trying to see if maybe the birds just weren't calling and if the dogs would find the birds that were being silent. So we were doing a lot of that kind of thing. And uh, in the process, you know, the dogs weren't finding that many birds either, but we were finding all kinds of pellets in the hmm. snow when we were walking around. And so, so we started keeping track of that and we ended up developing a pellet survey. So in 2018, we launched the first large scale spruce grouse survey right here in Minnesota through the help you know, we had lots of uh, volunteers, staff, and cooperators from seven different natural resource agencies. We have the tribes involved. Lots of different people are, are participating. Bailey helps each spring with the survey, too. Um, and so we're doing a fecal pellet survey now in the late winter and the early spring. Hmm. And so the data we've collected since 2018 indicate that we might be seeing some decline along the southern edge of the spruce grouse range here in Minnesota, but they seem to be more stable, more centrally within the range in Minnesota. But huh. we, are ex yeah, we are expecting the spruce grouse um, to shift north as their habitat shifts north with climate change. And, you know, if the boreal forest leaves northern Minnesota as it's projected to do, then we would expect spruce grouse to follow. So this survey will help us determine if and when adjustments to management should be considered. But at the time, we have about 7,000 to 19,000 spruce grouse harvested every year here in Minnesota. Um, and that's unique because in Wisconsin, they're listed as threatened. And in Michigan, they're a species of special concern. So we definitely want to keep an eye on our spruce grouse and make sure we know what, what's going on with their populations. So you said 7,000 to, did you say 19? Yeah. That, that number almost shocks me. Does it surprise you? Uh, actually, it doesn't. Because I think, I think that, um, you know, the number of spruce grouse harvested kind of cycles with the, the rough grouse hunters, you know. So mm. when we have a good 
rough grouse deer. Uh, lots of rough grouse hunters are in the woods, and, and a lot of them are, are also, you know, harvesting spruce grouse while they're out there. And so I think a, a lot of it is, is um, a lot of it, a lot of it's related to, you know, rough grass, grouse hunting and enthusiasm. Sure. Um, I do think that there are quite a few people that come just to kind of have the unique experience of spruce grouse and, and Bailey can tell you all about all the folks that call her and, and talk about, <laughs> you know, where to go and, and traveling from out of state to get the, you know, the, the rare spruce grouse yeah. uh, experience. Well, it is a very unique experience. Like you said, there, east of, well, the furthest east that you can go. Yeah, I have a question about the, um, the, the pellet survey, you know, as, as you're talking about, you know, not being able to find them through the calling or not, not as easily with dogs, but the pellets are allowing you to find them. Is that, is that because they're spending more time up in trees so it was harder to locate them or help me help me understand um why the pellets were the kind of the smoking gun on being able to figure out how to research them yeah well there's a there's a lot of i think different components that fed into that um in the winter uh, especially when snow roosting conditions are not great they do roost in the in the dense conifer forest mm -hmm. and so so they are up in the trees and you know some dogs will point point birds in trees but some won't mm -hmm. and so so that may have contributed to it but in the winter these birds are foraging primarily on conifer needles so they are eating pretty much non-stop and that means that they are putting a lot of pellets out there on the landscape and those pellets stay <laughs> frozen all uh -huh. winter long. And so uh -huh. when you go out in the early spring, you can kind of basically see all of the pellets that were deposited all winter long on the surface of the snow. So you have a lot of sign to find. And, uh, and so that makes it a lot easier to, to detect the birds and know which stands they're using. And, and so we get an index. We don't get a population estimate. We get an index. So we know if, if the birds are increasing or decreasing because we, their sign is increasing or decreasing. Wow. Well, that's fascinating. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump straight to the biology piece then because you kind of lead me right to you know, they're, they're connected to spruce grouse. So Asissa uh, Bailey, they, um, when you think about sage grouse, sage grouse and sage habitat are absolutely directly linked. Is that true with spruce grouse and spruce trees? Like if you don't have spruce trees, and I, it, it, you're not going to have spruce grouse. Is that an accurate correlation? Um, I, I think this, the word spruce tends to be um, like a generalized term for uh, what spruce grouse seem to prefer, which is short needled conifers. Um, so it's, yes, it is a lot of black spruce, um, especially in the wintertime, like Charlotte said. However, in uh, Minnesota, and, and really we find spruce grouse in Minnesota across the far northern reaches of mostly the entire state. So not just oh. over here in my part of the state, although this is where I'm most familiar. I, I've spent a bit of time um, in a couple other areas, but it, and it's mostly similar. Charlotte's going to be way more an expert on this since she you know, did a diet analysis as well as um, parts of her study 
all across the northern part of the state. Um, and also just doing, um, and, you know, every year when we fill out our spruce grouse survey forms, we're, we're marking the types of trees that um, are in our survey transects. And so we're, you know, there's a habitat component there. Uh, but yes, uh, black spruce um, and jack pine seem to be the favorites. Um, and that, okay. I think, is is similar in um, all the Great Lakes states with uh, tamarack also being heavily preferred, but not Ooh. available in the wintertime. Uh, and, and you do find them in mixed stands, mixed uh, balsam stands, mixed red pine stands, um, and occasionally mixed aspen birch uh, components in there as well. But I think, or in my opinion, that is uh, a good a good sign of a healthy population when they're reaching out to the the outskirts of of maybe what's considered their prime range. Um, they are an edge species uh, still. I mean, the, it, mm. it's just micro edges. You know, you, you maybe you don't see mm -hmm. them until you spend a lot of time in there, and. Uh, you walk into a black spruce bog and it might look all the same to you, but after mm -hmm. you spend a lot of time in there, um, for me as, is a, a, I'm also a, a lover of woodcock hunting and woodcock habitat. It's really no different. Uh, you walk into a sea of Aspen whips and it might look all mm -hmm. the same to you. But when you start to notice that the forest floor is a little more shaded in this spot and the woodcock are preferring to be here because there's more, um, soil exposed on the surface in, in those just little micro changes uh, that aren't really visible when you look at a sea of, of monoculture, mm. but, it, but you just have to spend a lot of time in there just to really see the, those changes, I think. So yeah, uh, or, or there are plenty of power line corridors, roads, um, transitions to other cover types, um, uh, maybe openings from windstorms or things like that. Those all create edge. Um, and that is a good place to, to search for these birds. Um, you, you mentioned, um, you use the word, I think heavily favor tamarack, which they lose the needles in the winter. So they're not, what do you mean by heavily favor tamarack in, in this? So when tamarack have their needles, do they eat tamarack needles and that's their preference or do they live in tamarack uh, forest? Or what, what do you mean by they heavily favor? Well, tamarack? I'll answer quickly and then throw it over to Charlotte because <laughs> uh, I know that that was a, a surprising um, finding in, in some of the early parts of her um, GPS or her, sorry, radio collared um, study on the birds. But in when I've been in the UP and found um, spruce grouse that has always been in tamarack stands, um, huh. And yeah, and then in Minnesota, um, I have not been in pure tamarack stands pursuing them. I don't have any pure tamarack stands in my in my survey routes, but that that um, doesn't mean that that's not the case in other parts of the state. But it, it, where it is mixed um, into black spruce, it is just a preferred diet, um, you know, species for them. Interesting. And Charlotte, sorry, uh, just. Um, any of the larch, um, so tamarack family species out west is another spot that you could find the um, Franklin subspecies, which is the 
subspecies that is found over there is mainly in lodgepole pine and um, in larch species, which are also short-needled conifers. Gotcha. Which they're eating and living yeah. in as they're having yep. that. Anything, um, Charlotte, you want to add to the conversation related to spruce and tamarack and, sure. and their habitat? Yeah, tamarack's important um, breeding habitat because they, you know, obviously tamarack is a deciduous species that loses its needles in the winter, but in the summer it's really important. And one of the reasons why I think it's important is because spruce grouse like the fresh growth of needles. And of course, the entire tamarack is fresh growth, mm. whereas other species of conifers are, you know, they're getting new growth e each year, but quite a lot of what's what's there has been there for a while. And, and that older growth has, you know, more protective compounds that are harder to digest than the new growth has. So you'll frequently find spruce grouse in, you know, foraging on the new growth of, of different species and tamarack is basically all new growth. So Ooh. very important in the in the summer as a, an important food and and a lot of the birds will actually move into tamarack stands in the summer from from their winter areas okay and when when um there's spruce grouse chicks um are they eating needles um tamarack spruce needles or are they eating bugs like the majority of upland game birds when they come out of the egg yeah, most most of them are eating bugs. They okay. also, you know, I've seen them eating mushrooms and other Ooh. other plants and things like that. So they, you know, bugs are very important. They're a good protein source for the growing chicks. Um, it helps them to, you know, to get their feathers in and and uh, be very mobile from from the very beginning. They're very precocial, like other upland game birds. They leave the nest the day they hatch. So they got a lot of energy requirements and bugs are where it's at. Um, <laughs> okay. But there's lots of other things. Um, and the adults in the summertime also eat a much more diverse diet than what mm. they eat in the winter. In the winter, it's pretty much conifer needles, um, mm. the short needled conifer needles. But in the, the rest of the year, they're, you know, they're taking advantage of berries, blueberries and, and insects and fungi and pretty much anything that's out there that's, that's edible. Um, we found in their, in their diets. So th this, this is a question that uh, I didn't have on my outline for either of you. So <laughs> it's a little bit of surprise, but I'm, uh, I was thinking about it the other day. I was super curious. Like um, if you think about upland game birds, the color of the meat is generally related to how much they fly. So if you think about a pheasant, it's got white meat, on the breast and red, um, darker meat on the legs because they, they will run as opposed to flying. Um, and the, the, the reverse is true of sharp tailed grouse and, um, prairie chickens where the, the meat is very red on the breast because they fly so much. Same thing with, with ducks. And I'm thinking maybe Bailey knows, uh, the answer to this related because of the, your duck research, but spruces, based on my knowledge, don't fly a whole lot, but based on their, uh, but their meat is super dark red breasts. Is that related to their diet or is, are they using, is there more um, flight um, that I don't know about related to spruce grouse? That's a long-winded question for you. Yeah. Bailey, do you know the answer to uh, that? I'm going to have to 
to throw it over to Charlotte. We've discussed this before, <laughs> and uh, I, I don't have a good answer for – I mean, I just don't think that it's connected to flight in, in this particular instance. Okay. I think that spruce grouse fly more than rough grouse do. Um, in in general, their home ranges are quite a bit bigger. Rough grouse, mm. you know, rough grouse occupy a very small area their whole lives, and spruce grouse actually do move around quite quite a a, a fair bit. Um, and they're spending, I think, a lot more time in in trees than, mm. than rough mm-hmm. grouse as well. So I think that's part of it. But it might also have something to do with their low quality diet and just mm. how much they, you know, they're, they're having to, um, you know, a different, in, I'm, and this is purely speculation here, but because their diet is so high in fiber and, and so low in, in, um, you know, other types of nutrients that, that are needed for, for muscle contraction, I'm, I'm guessing that they, it's an adaptation to, you know, to allow them to, you know, to be mobile in the way that they need to be with that diet, you know, so that they're, you know, they're adapted to be able to persist on a diet of such low quality. And they are surprisingly, they're surprisingly mobile. Um, You know, you think that you could go in back into the same stand and find them exactly where you are finding these piles and piles and piles of pellets and then there's nowhere to be found in there, you know. And, 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 well, I mean, Charlotte had study birds that you could stare at the tree all day. You know it's up there, but you can't see it. So they spend a lot of time moving around up in those treetops. Huh. And the trees aren't even that particularly tall. And we're not talking about super canopy trees here either. They're, mm-hmm. they're um, you know, medium. I mean, they're old-aged trees. They're just not, you know, they're not these towering red and white pines. They're... they're um, just you know kind of low quality old um like i mean yeah spruce trees that are just that you know when they're really stacked in there quite tight they don't they don't mm-hmm. grow super tall and so i i just these birds are always moving around somewhere yeah it is for for folks that um maybe don't live where rough grouse live it is startlingly different so charlotte mentioned rough grouse um super white delicate meat spruce grouse really dark meat so it is um it is an interesting contrast um let's follow biology a little bit further charlotte and you know i've talked i've taken super deep dives on nesting season for pheasants and quail and you know, how many eggs in a clutch, um, incubation period, whether or not upland birds, you know, have a re-nest or a second hatch, which they don't, they, they re-nest if they lose their eggs. Um, tell us a little bit about spruce grouse reproduction and nesting season. Just kind of take us an overview of how spruce grouse maybe compare and contrast to, to pheasants, quail, rough grouse. Sure. So spruce grouse are, um, you know, coming into the reproduction around the same time of year that rough grouse are, you know, around April, you start mm. seeing the males strutting around and, uh, and the females are, are, you know, basically uh, deciding where their territories are going to, 
you know, where they're going to nest. And they do kind of defend a small area around where they're nesting um, from other females. And they, they do this um, part. I think that's part of the function of the Cantus call is mm. to alert other females to this is this is where I'm going to be. Uh, and uh, and so in in April, uh, that's when, you know, the males and females are are um, seeking mates. And so the males will uh, they don't drum or or lack, but they they do uh, do a display for the females where they will they will fan their tail a couple times and they shift it from side to side. They'll Ooh. puff up their breast feathers and then they'll do a flutter flight display where they'll fly up into a tree and, and land. And uh, it's really, it's really pretty entertaining to watch. Um, and then uh, the females will lay a nest. Um, usually they begin nesting in May um, with hatching usually around June. Um, they lay a clutch of about five to seven eggs, but Ooh. it can range from four to nine. So smaller than your other game birds. Yeah. Um, they also tend to have a slightly longer um, lifespan, spruce grouse do. So they have a little bit uh, lower reproductive rate than some of the other game birds do. Um, but uh, the, the clutch can range from four to nine eggs, but it's usually five to seven the females will nest at the base of a tree usually, um, and they're they're very cryptic. You can walk right by them and not not even see them. Hmm. Um, they incubate for about 21 days, which is a little bit shorter than you know some of your other game birds. I think yep. rough grouse are about 23 days or so, 24 days. Um, and, uh, and they do not have multiple broods, as you mentioned, but if they lose their nest early in the season, like very early in laying or early in incubation, they sometimes will re-nest if they have enough, um, reserves to be able to, to pull that off. And mm. so, um, the chicks hatch and they're, they're precocial, meaning that they can leave the nest the day they hatch and, uh, and they're often about throughout the forest. Uh, brood rearing habitat is, is usually more open than what they require in the winter. Um, you'll, they, it tends to have a lot of um, shrubs like Labrador tea and uh, leather leaf. Those are you know, good places for, for them to find food and, uh, and they're pretty mobile. And then you know, within about 10 days, they're able to make short flights. Hmm. So they're, you know, similar to rough grouse, you know, good, uh, good warm Junes are, are good for chick survival. You know, if you don't have too much rain, that's, you know, when they're young and, and not really able to thermoregulate quite as well, um, that usually favors good survival of, of chicks in the, in the summer. And what about, um, what, what, what are the predators that focus on spruces? Like, what, is it to same, kind of nest, um, nest raiders, skunks, raccoons, possum, well, maybe not possums that far north, but weasels. Um, and then, you know, maybe as chicks hatch and adults with different variations of hawks and, you know, lynx in the north. I mean, it's yeah. that kind of the, the, pre the predators in the mix. Everything likes eggs. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, so I think I think you could probably throw Fisher and Martin in there mm -hmm. and foxes and, you know, I think it's very opportunistic. I don't think that many predators are 
really specializing, but I think if they come upon, uh, you know, a spruce grouse nest, they're they're not going to pass it up as a free lunch. Right. Um, you've you've touched on a couple of times the research that you've done over the last um, few years. Any other highlights you want to bring forward for folks to kind of things that you've learned that are interesting based on your research, Charlotte? Sure. Thanks. I'm happy to talk a little bit about what we found. We put a lot of work into it and I think we learned some pretty cool stuff. So uh, we originally set out to examine how spruce grouse are using the landscape and how they respond to timber harvest. And we really wanted to have a better sense of what their habitat requirements are here in Minnesota. Um, You know, there's been a variety of different studies that have been done throughout their range about what what types of habitats they actually require, but every study seems to find something a little bit different. Hmm. Some studies have said, oh, it's early early age forest. Some have said, oh, it's more mature forest. And, and so we kind of actually found that it's, it has more to do with the forest structure um, and, and, and what, you know, what the forest um, density is more than you know, more than the age. And so Hmm. you can get that age in different ways, depending on, you know, how it's being managed. Um, You know, fire has been an important part of those systems. And, and so, you know, so that was one of the interesting things we learned. Um, We learned they use different types of conifer habitats at different times of year. So in the winter, you know, they're using those short needled conifers like jack pine and black spruce for food. Um, This also provides really good thermal cover when snow roosting conditions are poor. So, you know, spruce grouse also roost like rough grouse do um, below the surface of the snow. They they can go underneath the surface of the snow and and basically they can, you know, save energy by occupying a small space and heating that small space. And so when we have good deep snow and powdery snow, this is really good for snow roosting. Um, But if we get an ice crust on top of that from a melt series, then the birds can't use that. And so in those winters where we have freeze thaw events and get that snow crust, or when we have very, you know, not enough snow to roost in, which, you know, you need at least a foot of snow, um, then the birds are using these dense conifer forests for winter habitat, where they're they're actually roosting in the conifers in the dense structure. They get shelter from the wind, and and they can um, you know they can benefit from being hidden from predators in in those situations um, because you know they're dark birds in yep. a white landscape. So um, so those those conifers are important winter habitat. Um, the short needles provide food. Um, in the summer, they're using more open forests or less dense forests. Um, they'll move into the tamaracks, the lab tea. Um, they they use other, you know, they'll use black spruce in the summer as well, you know. But um, but they're they're basically a, a good number of them have this seasonal range shift where they'll just move to a, a, another area, another stand not too far away, where they'll benefit from a different habitat in a, in the two different seasons. And so those birds that make those small movements actually have higher survival than the birds that stay in the same area year hmm. round. 
Yeah, so that was kind of surprising. I, I actually expected it to be the opposite because I thought, oh, well, if they're making movements and they're dispersing through unfamiliar areas, that that's a high-risk activity, and, and I was wrong. The benefits of, of moving to better habitat seasonally um, outweigh those risks. They have higher survival if they do that. And so, so that was one of the cool things that we learned. Um, we learned that making these movements is facilitated by obviously having conifers, you know, good conifer connectivity on the landscape. Cooler spring temperatures are very good for these movements. Um, and so, so that was another thing we learned. Um, and then when we looked at the responses to timber harvest, um, we weren't sure if the birds would move or if, you know, what exactly would happen. Uh, but we actually found that most of the stands that were harvested, the birds weren't using, although they were using areas near those areas. And so they didn't quite, you know, change their, their use areas or anything, but they did have lower survival when they Ooh. were near stands that were harvested. And we think that that's likely because of the effects on the predators that are in the stands that are harvested. The predators are likely changing their habitat use around those stands. And that is then, um, re reducing the, the survival of, of prey species in the surrounding stands. Mm. And, uh, you know, we didn't mark predators, so we can't say for sure, but, um, but that lower survival was linked to higher predation rates. So, so we think that that's, a you know, probably the, the mechanism for that change. Um, but importantly, um, harvest is an important part of regenerating that dense forest structure that they need too. So, so we need, we need to kind of think about the whole picture and, and that they need different things at different times of year, much like rough grouse do, you know, mm -hmm. rough grouse need more than just Aspen. You mm -hmm. know, they need, they, they need a, a lot of different things at different times of year. They, they, their needs are met in different ways and spruce grouse are no different in that they, they need different things at different times of year. And, uh, and so we need to be thinking about that as we manage. As you were talking um, a little while ago about comparing them rough, uh, rough grouse to spruce grouse, you mentioned that uh, sprucees actually have a little bit broader range. And during your studies, did you, is there sort of a, an acre or a mile mark, like what, what a home range is for a spruce grouse? Oh, goodness. Uh, we did calculate that and it varies depending on, you know, the bird and the habitat and a variety of other things. But but most of the birds were occupying areas of about a, a square kilometer or so. Mm. Yeah. So that's quite a bit bigger than what you expect rough grouse to occupy. They they tend to be using smaller areas than even that. Um, but uh, a, a some of the birds would move seasonally. We had one bird that moved, I think it moved four kilometers between its winter habitat in a jack pine stand and its summer habitat in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> this a horrible, horrible bog that it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful mm. place to visit. But you needed like half a day to hike there because wow. it was just so remote. And and so that bird, we actually called that bird epic because it was <laughs> such an epic adventure to get out to 
get locations on that bird, you know, because we home mm. to the birds as part of that study. We actually, you know, you can walk up to a spruce grouse and, you know, they, they allow you to take habitat measurements right next to them because mm. they're not wary of humans the way that, you know, other birds are. So we would home to the birds um, once to, tw to twice a week. So that particular bird, I mean, it was an epic adventure every single time we tracked that bird. That's that's really fun. Um, all right, I, I'm going to transition us to um, kind of hunting. Uh, before I do, I want to give a shout out to Onyx, uh, national sponsor of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, sponsor of this podcast, and a longtime contributor to very specific habitat projects of our organization, whether it's land acquisitions or public access to private land like the PATH program in South Dakota. Uh, you can download the Onyx Hunt app um, and get 20% off your membership using the code PFQF. And Onyx will make a donation back to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's wildlife habitat mission. So thank you very much to Onyx for supporting our conservation efforts. All right, let's, let's bounce to Bailey and talk a little bit about spruce grouse hunting in Charlotte. In that last, um, her last discussion of spruces, talked about being able to research them right next to them because you know they're they're not as uh, wary as some of the other upland birds. In fact, you know they they're often referred to as fool's hens. Um, kind of give us your take on that that name and and then work us through. Um, like how you go about hunting spruce grouse. Sure. Um, yeah, I, so I understand what you're saying. I know that's their nickname is the fool hen. And um, you can read all kinds of accounts on social media about people throwing sticks at them or whatever. But I don't see that. Um, I don't see it. I don't see it like that when I'm when I'm running with dogs. And so I think that's just a. I think that's just a factor of how they've evolved. Um, dogs closely resemble predators, um, and they just have not evolved um, with human um, with humans here in Minnesota long enough to develop that fear of, of us yet. Um, I don't know if rough grouse developed that fear quicker, uh, or if it's just a factor of them uh, sort of benefiting by being closely associated with our um, disturbance uh, as we settled here uh, and created a great amount of forest disturbance, which created, you know, habitat for, for rough grouse. Um, whereas we don't do that so much with spruce grouse as these spruce stands um, that get managed for timber are, are, usually um, at, at a minimum two to three times the age of aspen when it's harvested. So if you think about how how um, often we're not in those stands. I mean, the last, I was in a spruce stand that had been recently harvested, um, just kind of walking around, seeing what had been regenerating. Um, and I found a crosscut saw, which had probably been left there the last time it got harvested. And so it like, the last time that stand had been harvested, they weren't using motorized equipment. 
So, he's, so there's a statement yeah, right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's my theory on it anyway. And so when, when I hunt spruce grouse, I do it on their turf. Um, and I, I don't see them, um, just standing around waiting, you know, to be killed. So they, I, I get very good flushes off of points, um, or I tend to not find them at all. And I think that's a factor of what we were discussing earlier about them spending so much time up in the tops of the trees. Um, Mm. I, uh, I do like to, um, target them like more in the later part of the season. I think it's a little bit easier, um, to tell whether they, they've been in there or not. You can walk literally seas of, um, spruce bog that look the same, you know, and, and just start to wonder what the heck you're even doing in there, um, before you even see a bird. And, and I do have, my dogs, um, will point them in trees. They just have to be, you know, more on the lower, the lower branches. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes it takes a while to figure out what the heck they're, um, looking at. (laughs) 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 Um, but I, I, you know, and we have had, I'm not saying that every bird acts, um, wild when you have a dog on the ground, but, um, I think they do act differently when they're in the depths of their stand, um, versus Mm. out on a trail or on the road, um, which is frankly where most of them get harvested in this state. Um, we did see dogs that ranged, um, further than maybe than my, my dogs are fairly close working. Um, and in a spruce bog, they tend to be within sight because you can see, usually you can see a little bit further than you can in a really dense aspen stand. And anyway, um, what you might experience when you walk up on a dog on point is a bird standing, um, you know, somewhere between waist and head height. And it's just working its way up um, these ladders, which are um, sort of a, like, that's just like a little bit of a tip to of a, something to look for when you're looking for good spruce grouse covers. If they don't have the, if they're just a tree with no branches, they're less desirable, I think, to spruce grouse just because they do use those ladders to move up and down the tree. Um, and mm. so in that amount of time that it took me to walk to my dog, that may have only been 60 yards away. That bird had already decided it was not going to stick around. Um, it didn't mm-hmm. flush. It wasn't a hard flush, but it started to move its way up the tree. And uh, so I think sometimes when dogs, you know, that are 100, 125 yards away on point, by the time you get there, there was very rarely, almost never a bird at the end of that nose. And mm-hmm. I think those birds just slowly moved their way on out of there. They they could have flushed. They could have been bumped. They maybe didn't exist at all. They could have been hiding up in the trees. We'll never, we'll never ever know. But that's just my theory is that um, without a person around, they were, um, starting to get the heck out of there at the speed that spruce grass do. Um, but I mean, I, I get pretty good flushes off of, um, points when the birds are on the ground. Um, so Mm -hmm. in that scenario, I would consider them, um, slightly less foolish and I don't ever use the word fool. I just like, I think they're, they're a very smart bird. They just, um, unfortunately haven't developed that fear. Charlotte, anything that you'd add um, hunting behind your Gordon setter? 
I guess I would just I'd just add that uh, the habitats that these birds tend to occupy are not areas that are easy to access mm -hmm. if they're not roaded. And so I think that, you know, a large part of the population is is not where a lot of people want to want to bust through. I mean, mm -hmm. these are these are dense conifers where, you know, you're constantly getting whacked in the face with branches. And so it's. <laughs> It, you know, your your hair is getting, you know, pulled, your hat's getting pulled off, your, you know, your clothes are getting stuck on things. And so, so I think that, you know, that likely contributes to the reason why they haven't um, had the, the same, um, the same development of wariness that, you know, rough grouse do that are, you know, obviously occupying areas that are a lot easier for people to access, I think, um, on foot. And, and so I think that, that, that is, is one factor that's contributed to, you know, their, their reputation of, of not having that fear. Yeah. It, it, it I also, I come back to, you know, a couple things Bailey said too, where, you know, one day you'll go to an area perfectly great, spruce grouse habitat and there'll be birds there and the very next day they're just absolute ghosts they just have completely and, and my assumption is they're just sitting in the trees um looking at me <laughs> and, I, and i can't find them you think that's a good is that a good theory charlotte i think sometimes that's true um we had the birds radio collared in our study and um and there were a few birds that you know you could basically count on them being in in a small area for for a while mm. but a lot of them actually moved we did mm. a, a lot of hiking um through the through the woods to find these birds and so they used you know they used pretty good areas. And I'm not sure if part of the reason they were moving is because, you know, they were trying to avoid predators, like you mentioned earlier, you know, things like raptors, um, owls, you know, if they're being chased, they obviously have a good reason to move far, but some of them would, you know, end up being, you know, a good half a kilometer away from where we'd found them, you know, just a couple of days prior. So, so mm -hmm. I don't think they're quite as sedentary as, as they have the reputation of, of being. That that's coming through loud and clear. Cause I've made that assumption at a couple of times in my questions and yeah, you, yeah, it sounds like your research is really, flip the perspective or should flip my perspective on how much they travel. Um, let me, um, let me ask a little bit. Uh, so Bailey, if you do get a sprucey, um, if you're successful, the, another misnomer is that they're, they taste terrible that, you know, like they just, they're eating spruce needles and they're not, they just taste like eating, Bruce needles. I haven't found that to be the case at all. What, what's your perspective? How do you prepare them? And do you like eating spruce grouse, Bailey? Yeah, I, uh, I have the first bird that we ever harvested was an adult male and it was a, like a little surprising at first, um, just not doing anything different to it than just like grilling it up and eating it. And it was like, wow, kind of like, little piney but i'm not i'm not 100 percent sure like why that's necessarily a bad thing um you know what i mean like sometimes you have to embrace Ooh. things for what they are 
um, and, and have since learned the way to properly treat these birds. I mean, I was um, very guilty of doing that the first time I went sharp tail hunting um, as mm. well and learned better by the time that we went sage grouse hunting. Um, you know, the, the, there's just a few things that you can do. <laughs> the, the worst of which would be overcooking them and mm-hmm. treating um, and treating spruce grouse like rough grouse. You, you don't treat a dark meat bird like a light meat bird, um, or, or you're going to get some, you know, disappointing results. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, in, in there's nothing wrong with marinating these things if you have to. Um, if you brine them. Um, overnight in salt water, um, you're not going to be able to tell the difference between a adult male bird from like a young of the year bird, which is very um, generally very tender and and, and um, does not have that kind of gamey, piney taste that you know maybe they have the reputation for. I um, mm. I think it's just learning how to take care of them. Um, what kind of seasonings you can use on them um, to, you know, to bring out the best in, in that particular piece of meat. Um, treat it more like a steak uh, and less like a rough grouse or a pheasant breast. Um, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, of course, like I already mentioned, not overcooking them is, is quite critical mm-hmm. in um, bringing out the best flavors, I think. Yeah. Yeah, right on. Yeah, like you said, they much more closely related on the plate to a sharp tail or a prairie chicken and just, you know, don't overcook it and you'll be in, in good shape. I, I absolutely love them. I just think that, like you say, embrace it for what it is. Um, but I, I've never found it to be an overpowering, you know, pine flavor. But maybe I've just, I haven't, bagged all that many of them so maybe i've just gotten mostly young birds and they're very delicate very mild and just terrific absolutely delicious um all right charlotte as as i wind to a close here i'm i was thinking about spruce grouse and you know there's there's essentially an organization for every species on the planet (laughs) you know there's there's a rough grouse society and and ducks unlimited and obviously pheasants forever and quail forever i'm not aware of a spruce grouse oriented nonprofit. um is is there a way for people that do fall in love with spruce grouse that they can help they maybe help the minnesota dnr um, that they can volunteer in some way to um, help this tremendous and wonderful game bird. Well, you're right, Bob. There, there's no spruce grouse society right now, but you can change that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there are a variety of other grouse societies, um, and the rough grouse society has has. Um, come to me with interest in spruce grouse. So there's opportunity to get involved through the other grouse societies as well. Um, But there's other ways to get involved too. So um, in in the past, uh, hunters have contributed to our research by submitting wings uh, for genetic samples. And that helped us look at movements on the landscape using those genetic techniques. And so conservation-minded hunters can contribute to research. 
Um, we also have citizen scientists, volunteers that are helping with the spruce grouse surveys. Um, and so there, there are ways to get involved. And, and of course, if you have land and you have forested land and, and you know, it would support conifers, uh, you know, you can manage your private land uh, to support spruce grouse habitat, thinking about the types of things they need at different times of year and how that best fits in with what you'd like to see on your property. So there's lots of different ways to, to get involved and to help spruce grouse. Awesome. Awesome. Um, all right. So closing thoughts, one thing that you want to leave listeners with um, as we um, as we wind down this conversation. And first of all, I want to thank you both for spending you know more than an hour with me, helping helping me learn about this bird that is is so beautiful and, and just really a terrific bird that is, I think, under um underappreciated across the country and probably just by the nature as we talked about where it lives you know the the ge geographic range is not really um all over the country and then within the states where it lives um you know the fact that you have to name one bird epic <laughs> just <laughs> just to to get to where they are it's it, you know they're they're in the far reaches of the forest in many places. And I just think that they're, they're beautiful and wonderful. And I really appreciate you both spending the time today. Um, let's start with Charlotte. Um, do you have a, a closing thought that you want to leave listeners with? Yes, absolutely. And I want to also thank you so much for, for having us here today to share with you about this fantastic bird. Um, I guess I'd just like to remind folks, you know, spruce grouse are a climate sensitive bird of our north woods. And while we have boreal conifer forests here in Minnesota, we can have habitat for spruce grouse. But the climate's changing and it's going to bring changes for spruce grouse. So if we think proactively about how we can manage forests that are going to provide winter habitat for these birds, then we're going to be able to maintain spruce grouse here in Minnesota at the southern edge of their range for mm. longer. So I just, you know, I guess appeal to people to appreciate what we have and take care of it so so we can have it for as long as possible. Really well said. I, I guess one follow-up question as we're recording here, January 18th, um, not much of a winter so far. I'm assuming that's not good for this year's uh, overwintering population of spruce grouse. Is that an accurate assessment, Charlotte? I think that that's a, a pr pretty good prediction. Um, you know, we don't have a whole lot of snow for snow roosting, but we do have some colder temperatures. They can use the, the dense forest um, mm. structure for snow roosting, or not for snow roosting, but for roosting, for thermal cover, and for protection from predators. So I think that, you know, they do have some tools as long as we're managing the the forest well. But if we, if we, you know, if they don't have that dense forest structure for roosting in the winter, then, you know, this would be uh, much, much harder for them to cope with. So, mm -hmm. um, so that, that habitat management is, is obviously key to how they fare in a winter like this one. So it may not be Christmas anymore, but let it snow, let it snow, <laughs> let it snow. <laughs> and Bailey's smiling because I know she likes winter too. <laughs> I'm, I'm, Bailey, I think we've got a little bit of snow um, up here. And I've heard a few accounts of people being frightened by snow roosting grouse um, already this year in the last week. So I'm feeling a little more positive about that coming out of an Arctic blast. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, final final words. They're all yours. Dana. All right. Um, so spruce grouse are they're a vulnerable species. Um, they are a bucket list bird for hunters um, to come up here and harvest. So I just. I always want to urge people, I mean, feel free to reach out. I'm happy to help um, give tips and suggestions. Um, and I can give a few of those um, here real quick. But, um, you know, just be ethical when you're hunting these birds. Um, there, There's sometimes a little bit of a gap in what's legal and what's ethical. And you just need to decide for yourself what the definition of that is, um, as we've discussed, they're um, sort of a vulnerable species in many ways, um, both mm. to, to humans um, out on the roads uh, and sensitive in other ways, you know, from a population status. So like I mentioned earlier, um, hunt them on, on their turf, go go into their covers um, and, and look for them. Uh, in their environment um and uh you know they they it is not difficult to take out an entire brood from uh, a roadside or from a tree and and again do whatever makes you happy knowing that it's legal but um sometimes that can just be a little bit tough to swallow because it does happen quite often up here and so um you know Mm. I'd say burn some boot rubber, but you're not really burning a lot of it in the spruce log. You're more sinking. Um, I, I, like I said, I, I recommend going um, in frozen ground conditions. It makes walking around in the bog quite a bit easier. Um, it You can see tracks on the ground. Um, it's so much more fun to find spruce grouse on the ground when you're, when you're working with good dogs. Um, look for that sign. Um, Charlotte scientifically called them pellets. I just call them poop on the ground (laughs) and that's going to help you find the birds. And and this time of year when um, over here, we get a little bit of lake effect snow every day, the further away from Lake Superior you get, the less you see that. But when you get a fresh coating of snow um, most every day in the late season, it does help you to determine whether you're on fresh sign or not. Um, and so I like to wait until there's a little bit of snow um, to look for them. And they're still out on the ground quite a bit. Um, and like, I mean, I've given spots to folks, to friends, um, very specific stands to go and look for spruce grouse. And it, it's taken them multiple entries to find the birds mm-hmm. in there um, and for the reasons that we've discussed today. But um, I promise you they're in there. <laughs> Let me ask you, you know, you bring up the question of legality versus ethics. So legally in the state of Minnesota, you can hunt. um, So grouse species, you can bag five birds a day. Combined rough grouse and spruce. So spruces and rough combined five birds legally. Um, what would you, what's your personal ethic on the number of spruces that you would take in a day out of that bag? Um, I mean, it really depends on like how you're going to spend that particular day, right? So like um, mm. 
just as a completely unrelated example, when I'm out um, in the early season out west um, hunting sharp tails, um, that covey rise, you you know, and you're getting lots of bird contacts, you could fairly easily fill your bag maybe the first run of the day. Well, then you got three dogs sitting back in the truck. And I mean, I guess you could go um, target hunts the rest of the day, but then you're watching maybe a lot of really good dog work and you're not dropping birds over those dogs. So um, over my years of traveling out west to hunt, it's like, I love to spread those birds out throughout the day and throughout the dogs. Mm -hmm. And so I guess it just going back to Minnesota or I'm sorry, any of the states that you might be hunting spruce grouse in where it's a combined bag, um, you know, as uh, lumped into forest grouse, possibly. Um, you just got to decide what your plan for the day is. Um, mm. And and they do group up a bit. Um, rough grouse group up a bit, too, in the, in the wintertime. I would say probably all the forest grouse do. Um, and so you could... Um, fairly easily take multiple birds out of a brood and they they're not like quail they're not um coveying up together to keep each other warm they're um you know living in those groups because it benefits them for for one reason or another potentially food and um they do find um natural grit sources in the winter that perhaps for alerting for predators or just because of safety in numbers but no matter what, I just always like to spread out my hunts throughout the day. I don't, um, I don't take more than a quarter of the rough grouse that I find in a cover throughout the year. I guess I usually feel like I'm lucky if I hit a rough grouse in each cover that I hunt in a year because I do love to go to new areas. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, I'm fortunate. I know that I'm fortunate to live here. Um, living in counties that have like 75 plus percent public land in them. I have um, no shortage of places to go. And so I do like to go to a new spot every time I get, I get that if you're coming up here from far away, you might not have the opportunity to go to lots of different places. And if you see them here, then you're going to want to take them. Um, and in that situation, I don't, see why you would maybe need to take more than a pair of birds uh, perhaps some for the table some to be mounted I'm, I would have no problem with that and um, again it's all personal preference um, as long as it's mm -hmm. legal you do whatever you want to do um, a lot of people like to mount or want to mount spruce grouse like I said a bucket list bird the males are super beautiful um, and so those in particular tend to be what folks are looking for. And in that situation, I know just from friends who have done it, um, that you're looking, you're really looking for that mature male. So you may have to harvest a few birds to get that perfect bird in hand. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, you've mentioned a couple of times that you're you willing to entertain, you know, maybe a email to provide some tips to folks, um, are you willing to share email address for people that want to reach out? Yeah, no problem. I mean, email is probably easiest just because it will sometimes take a bit uh, of time to respond. Or if you're in a different area or looking to hunt in a different area, I may have to um, send you to, you know, a more local contact, but I'm happy to do that. Um, I can spell it out for you now and then maybe put it in the notes or whatever. But it's um, my name, Bailey 
Peterson. Um, so it's B-A-I-L-E-Y dot Peterson, P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N. That There's probably an S-O-N somewhere that has a bunch of emails sitting in it that <laughs> And then it's at state.mn.us. So bailey.peterson at state.mn.us. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Bailey, for being willing to, to share your email and help point folks in the right direction. And um, thank you both, Charlotte and, and Bailey, for sharing all your knowledge and expertise with me. I really enjoyed talking about Spruces and learning, learning a lot more today. Um, you guys broke some myths um, that I had and that, no surprise. <laughs> that, was, that was wonderful to learn. So thank you very much. Um, folks, thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And I uh, hope it inspires you to get out and learn some new birds, learn some new habitats. Um, upland birds live in beautiful places. You've heard me say that before. And spruce grouse live in an absolutely beautiful place, arboreal forest that is changing, but is worthy of our protection and our conservation. So please do um, think about making a visit to uh, uh, Northern Minnesota or some of the other places that spruce grouse live because you will not be disappointed. I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening, folks. <laughs>